Welcome to the new school. What we wanted to do was talk about the concept of authenticity and vulnerability in an industry that has typically been super buttoned up, super professional, and a little bit old school. Welcome to episode number 12 of the New School Video Podcast. It's Candice, Head of Advisor Education at Ficom Partners. And in this episode, our CEO, Meg Carpenter, and I have the really cool opportunity to talk to Wes Cow, who is the co-founder of Maven. So they're in beta right now, but they're the first cohort-based learning platform, and they're going to marry all the things Zoom, online platform, Slack, to facilitate the new school of learning, which is the cohort-based medium. She's also the previous co-founder of the Alt-MBA that she built alongside Seth Godin. And in this episode, she shares her perspective on how to successfully adopt a mindset of experimentation when solving new problems to disrupt the status quo, but also why cohort-based learning and community really fosters more effective and powerful learning. And she believes it is the future. We do too. Wes, we're so excited to have you on The New School. Honestly, if I think about anyone out of our industry being in New School, I think it's you. Thank you for being here. I'm super excited to chat with both of you. So before we get started, you obviously have a really interesting, really cool background. You've been my coach in the past, but I think one of the blogs that really stood out to me that I remember reading of yours was when you were working with Seth Godin and you were beginning to market the Alt MBA, which was an entirely new thing. And you'd made this comment in the blog about how you would turn to Seth and ask him questions because you didn't know how to market the Alt-MBA because it was such a new concept. And you thought that whenever you asked him a question, he was kind of using Socrates' method of learning, asking your questioning, questioning your thinking so that you could really find some rigor around it. But that how one day he turned around to you and said, listen, I'm not just asking you questions because I don't because I want you to think more. It's honestly because I don't know the answer and the revelation that you had where we know Seth Godin is like one of the most innovative strategic marketers of our time, didn't know the answer and that it was just going to be an experiment to figure it out. What was that like for you and how has that influenced everything that you've been building? Yeah, that that was definitely a light bulb moment for me because up until then, in my mind, I had the idea that certain people had the right answer. And if you ask those people, they might give you the right answer or they might try to um, Socratic method their way to helping you get there. So I'd always thought that um, that Seth was trying to guide me and teach me and whatnot. Um, and and one day he turned around, we were, you know, our desks were 20 feet apart. And he said, Wes, if I knew the answer, I would just tell you. And, and it was just this groundbreaking, just mind-blowing moment where I thought, okay, wow. So even, even geniuses, experts, gurus, they don't know the answer. Um, and a lot of, a lot of um, them are also figuring it out as we go, you know? And so at that time with the Alta Bay, we're figuring it out as we go. 
Um, but it really opened my eyes to um, embracing experimentation and embracing trying something, looking out for data points to validate your hypothesis or invalidate it, and um, to embrace that as the default mode. Not necessarily thinking that, hey, there's there's right answer somewhere and I need to find it, but more um, making sure that you're constantly testing your own hypotheses on something. And then when you get new information, you kind of update that and say like, okay, does that fit what I was thinking? Or is that surprising? Was that a pattern break in some way? And that approach, I think you can apply to um, building anything that's new. I think you have to take that approach um, because there isn't someone that just knows what to do. Okay, this is so relevant for our space because we work in financial services, but even within financial services, we work really um, tightly within the independent wealth management community. So we work with financial advisors who are serving the end consumer, and then we also work with service providers to the advisory community. And so when we think about our community, you think finance and numbers, and sometimes numbers can be very black and white, right? Like one plus one equals two. But with the work that financial advisors do, it's really not that black and white, right? Because they're looking at each individual's financial plan and risk tolerance and time horizon and goals and objectives and what they want for themselves and their family and their legacies and whatnot. And so much of what you just said rings true in how financial advisors approach their relationships with their clients. Yet, we don't necessarily see financial advisors approach marketing in the way that you just explained it, Wes, which is marketing is basically just a string of experiments and you have to be looking for the data points so that you can listen, learn, and iterate. So it's such an important concept for us. And Candace and I are these like marketing junkies and we follow you um, all the time and we follow Seth and we know what the alt MBA is, but for people that are listening that might not be as familiar, can you just sort of back to that process? That's the genesis of the idea of alt MBA and sort of just tell our listeners about that journey and then really what the program is. And I know we also want to get to sort of like what you're doing today, which is also super cool. Yeah, definitely. The Alt-MBA is a four-week leadership and management online core-based course uh, that Seth and I co-founded in um, 2015. And, you know, my my journey into um, shaking things up in online learning really started in 2014 when I moved from San Francisco to New York to work with Seth. Initially, it was as special projects lead. And one of my first projects was um, creating and producing a, a Udemy course for Seth. And in the process of working on um, on this, um, I dove deep into the world of MOOCs. So MOOCs are massive open online courses. So they're courses like um, uh, on Udemy, Skillshare, LinkedIn Learning. So these are video-driven, pre-recorded courses that were the default at the time. And as I started looking into it, I realized that the completion rate of these courses was super low, 7%. So you have a whole bunch of... People who are excited to learn and say they want to learn, sign up for a bunch of courses, and then a tiny percentage of people who actually stay around long enough to finish the course. And I myself have been in that position where I have a hand lettering calligraphy course (laughs) course in Skillshare somewhere where I watched half a lecture seven years ago, and it's been gathering digital dust ever since. So I was very aware of this um, challenge from personal experience. And it, and 
bringing up a set that really got us thinking, was there a better way? Was this just it? Like, was this it with online learning that this was supposed to be this transformative way for people to learn, but, but you know, so few people were actually benefiting from it. And it got us kicking around ideas of, you know, what if we could, what if we could keep the scale of video driven courses, but combine it with the magic and community that happens when you gather in the same room with other people who are um, nerding out about the same things and want to learn together, right? Like, was there a way that we can combine those two things together? And kicking around ideas eventually led to the Alt MBA. Why is the Alt MBA so powerful? I mean, it's like, I feel like it was life-changing for me, but I feel like everyone who goes through it feels that way. And I feel like if you're in any city or I get a referral and someone says, oh, they're an Alt MBA grad, I kind of get a sense of who they are and like, I want to work with them. Like, where does that come from? What is that? And was that intentional? Absolutely. I think communities are one of the biggest reasons why cohort-based courses are so powerful. So what you just said there, Candice, of um, feeling like if someone's an Alt-MB alum, that you know you have certain things in common, right? You have that shared language, you have shared context, you know they're a certain kind of person. um, And that's so powerful. I think all of us are looking for more um, like-minded collaborators who share similar values, who want to challenge things the same way. Um, and, and community is a really big part of, it was a big part of the Alt MBA and a big part of cohort based courses in general now. Um, so kind of taking a step back with, you know, why are core based courses gaining steam? Um, you know, one is with MOOCs, video driven courses, they were self-guided and self-paced. So you could do it anytime yourself, which meant that anytime there was a distraction, you were gone. Um, on the other hand, cohort based courses are, there's, there's, uh, it's time bound. So there's a start and an end date, which automatically creates a sense of urgency because you need to take that course before it's over. Um, another component of it is um, passive content consumption versus active learning. So passive content consumption is just watching videos. It's reading by yourself. It's kind of like reading a nonfiction book where um, at the end of each chapter, there's questions to ask yourself and no one ever does those questions. <laughs> Right? I never and, do them. I never. Because you know it would help if you did them, but you're like, I'm just going to keep reading because it's easier to just keep reading. So with core-based courses, it's all about active learning where you are hands-on doing. You're forced to do those reflection questions. Um, you're debating, you're discussing, you're iterating. Um, you know, Instead of just reading about sales or watching videos about sales, you're practicing your pitch and um, to a live audience of other students and they're giving you feedback. And they're tearing it apart. And then you're taking that feedback and improving it and then doing it again and drilling that. So that iterative hands-on piece and that practice really um, leads to such deeper outcomes and a better experience for students. And then lastly, um, video courses tend to be pretty um, affordable. So $20 to $50 a piece. Um, and a lot of them are you know, discounted even more, $10 or so. Whereas cohort-based courses are priced at a, a, a price point where you have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. So courses range from $500 per student to $5,000. But in either case, you feel like, um, you know, I paid for this. I want to make sure that I show up and I take it seriously. So all of these things combined create so many hooks for students to uh, really focus on their learning, 
to do it with a bunch of people who were motivated enough to also jump through, you know, all these hoops and, and go through that gauntlet to be here in the course. Um, and it's a chance to curate this community of people that um, is is interested in the same topics. So it's not it's not just the general public. It's you know we're we're a group here that's here for a reason. This timing of this is so important for us because what we're experiencing in our industry is that there's a lot of and I hadn't heard this term until today. So thank you for teaching me a new term. But there's a lot of MOOCs <laughs> popping up <laughs> and. You know, on the one hand, we get excited about it because we think that where our industry is and like the evolution stage that we're in and the need that we have to accelerate because the the world that we live in, you know, is, is old school, um, which is why we like to talk about the new school. Um, but I think to your point, like everything that you just discussed about cohort based learning, these those learnings, your learnings are hyper relevant in our industry right now. And I think I was in listening to you speak, I was thinking about when I work with financial advisors in this space, they'll talk a lot about power of study groups and they form study groups on their own with, you know, peers in their community that they've met through networking and study groups are really powerful. And yet that hasn't yet sort of like, we haven't crossed the chasm from, believing in study groups to like having cohort based learning be something that's just sort of a standard in our industry. And that's what we're, we have built and we're looking to sort of extend the impact of the alt MBA philosophy and how we approach our advisor education. So I appreciate you sharing all of those learnings. And when you were talking, I was also thinking about accountability, you know, like I, cause I have, I got, I was gifted for my birthday last year, a year long subscription to masterclass. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited about it. I didn't finish any of the courses I started and, you know, it made me feel kind of lazy. And I was like, Oh gosh, I can't even do this. But the truth is there's no accountability and there's no feedback loop. So it was just really difficult for me to get engaged and I think that, you know, from the perspective of where we're going, but like you, you did this back in 2014, 2015, like the learnings that we have, um, that you have, that we can apply in our industry are super powerful. But what would you say to us, like Candace and I, who are bringing this concept to an industry, you know, that is relatively, we're all sort of new, like what are some of those learnings of launching the alt MBA and you now, you know, launched Maven like that we as newbies, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think starting with your customer transformation is really important. So with creators that we work with to help them build and launch their courses, I always tell them to start with the student transformation. So if you think about um, a spectrum and um, your customer or student is here and they want to go here, what is that gap and how can you help them fill that gap and get to where they want to go faster. And the bigger the transformation, the more impactful your course is. So if someone's here and you're getting them here in a way, that's useful. But if they're here and you're getting them, you know, you're helping them make this huge leap, then, um, then that's where you can add a lot of value. So thinking about optimizing for what's the transformation that my customer, my client um, is really looking for and how can I help them achieve that? So that's one. I always start there. And the second thing to think about is um, looking inwards. So what are your unique strengths, 
weaknesses, assets, levers, constraints. So really looking at your own situation of what's practical for you, what's what you're naturally good at, what people are already asking you for as, as an advisor. Um, I think so many of us um, look at what other people are doing and think like, oh, I wish I were more like that. Or oh, if I only had that, then our business would be so different. Um, and, and I like um, talking about turning a bug into a feature. So whatever your situation is, instead of trying to think, how can I gloss over this or lamenting that things, you know, wishing things were different, what if you turn that into a feature for your clients? So if you're, um, let's say, more of a, an introverted person, um, you know, you could think, oh, well, if I were more introverted, I could do this and this and this. But what if the fact that you're introverted is exactly why you're a perfect fit for some clients, that you bring a different posture and a different approach and you listen well and you're not as pushy and there are clients looking for all of that. Um, but if you're introvert, if you're extroverted, that's awesome too. Um, instead of wishing that you were more, you know, that you talk slower or that you whatever, like lean into that extroversion, that, that, that you draw people out, um, you create a sense of liveliness, right. To an industry that people can find, um, intimidating or stale or something. Um, so this idea of turning a bug into a feature, I think is so huge and you can apply it to your brand and you can apply it to yourself as a person. Um, so combining, how can I transform my clients and customers, students to where they want to go? And then what are things unique about me that make me uniquely suited to help them? And um, anything that's unique, really turning up the dial on that, thinking if I 10X this, how could this be um, not a bug, but a feature and a selling point that a certain type of client would absolutely love and be gravitated towards? I mean, Wes, I always feel like I'm in a masterclass when you're talking. I mean, do you just think about these things all day long? Or <laughs> Thank you, Candice. You're amazing. Honestly, I mean, this is what we're preaching to advisors when they're coming through all of our cohort-based workshops, which is really about uh, when we have the idea of showing up authentically, it's really about like what are your strengths and how do you leverage them? And I think about Marcus Buckingham's first book when he was with Gallup, Strengths Finder. Did you ever do that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. I feel like when I read Strengths Finder, it was almost like a spiritual awakening for me, like 10 plus years ago, because I was like, oh, like you can actually make your strengths so strong and get a lot of energy from it that your weaknesses become irrelevant. And also what I'm hearing from you is like, how do you leverage those strengths in such a way where they are literally your superpower? So I think it's just so refreshing. Um, So you've written some really cool stuff that I really am like always intrigued about, whether it's on Twitter or your blog and you're with Maven. What are some of your new learnings that you've had in launching Maven? Can you tell us a little bit about it, why you've done it? And also why you wrote the hierarchy of content BS. So Maven, we started about six, seven months ago. And um, at that time I was consulting, working directly with course creators on helping them build their versions of the Alt MBA, their courses and, and schools. And one pattern that I noticed with almost every client was that they were cobbling together a bunch of different tools just to make courses work. So they were cobbling together Zoom for live lectures, Slack or Circle for community, um, 
posting their content on Teachable or Podia, using email to stitch it all together and remind people of upcoming class dates and links. And, and there were always a ton of students asking, where do I find this? Where do I find that? And so that, that logistical burden um, made the entire course creation process a lot more complicated than it needed to be. Um, and the idea for Maven um, was partially born from, you know, there's no one out there right now that is um, creating a platform that's entirely based around cohort-based learning and making it really easy for instructors to have everything they need to build, launch, and run a course all in one place. Um, and for students to have a place where they can see all the cohort-based courses that are happening. So there's no there's no platform marketplace right now where you can, if you're excited about learning and you want to do it in a cohort-based way, you don't want to do it alone, um, where you can see easily what's out there, who's teaching, can I filter for courses on UX design or courses on public speaking or you know courses on um, uh, financial advice, right? So, um, so for me, um, Maven was an idea was a way to not only work with half a dozen um, course creators per year, which at the time with consulting, I can only really go deep with so many clients. Um, but with a platform, with a more technology-driven approach, we could help thousands of creators. And I really think that in the next two to three years, um, the number of people that are launching courses, teaching what they know, sharing their knowledge, um, and making it accessible for students all over the world um, is going to grow tenfold or a hundredfold. Um, and so we really want to be there to help make that process easier and um, less of a, a complicated slog like it is now. So if we wanted to, we could put FICOM Advisor Education on the Maven platform? Yeah. So maybe not exactly today, but in the near future. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Sign us up. <laughs> yeah. We're still in beta right now. So a lot of our features are still being built. Um, and we're right now partnering with instructors to help them um, create courses from scratch. There's a lot of interest on, you know, how do you do this? Where do I start? Um, courses can be a more complicated product to build because there's that live component. So if you're creating a video-driven course, you get to pre-record everything, edit it, make sure it looks really good, and then hit publish. Um, but with core-based courses, that live component and the more premium price point means that your students have higher expectations many times. So you really want to make sure everything is tight. So we teach you how to do that. Uh, and, it, and it brings in the, the content hierarchy of BS, uh, Candice, that you mentioned. Um, so we, we help you make sure that your course um, has very little BS in it. It's, it has a lot, not just the what and the why, but the how. Great courses have how. Uh, people signed up for your course because they, they believe you on the what and the why. That's why they want to do this. And what they're really looking for from you is how do I do it? How do I think about this? thoughtfully? How do I weigh trade-offs? How do I make a smart decision around this idea that I'm excited about? So it really gives um, experts like you both a chance to shine and really share all those nuances that in any single post or a tweet, you just don't have the space to teach it in that level of depth. Um, but in a course, you have super engaged students who are there and they're committed and they're ready. Um, and you can really, really go deep, which is pretty nerdy and fun. You know, when I found, you know, when I worked at some of the firms that I've worked at specifically, we would bring in really expensive experts for the advisors. So to like coach them and talk about like, how do you talk about pricing with your clients? Like how do you think about personal brand or these types of things? And what we found time and time again was that advisors were way more interested in talking to each other 
that peer-to-peer sharing, that collaboration, that community, and learning from each other. And without a doubt, when we're talking to firms about putting their advisors through some of our workshops, which are cohort-based workshops, the thing that comes out is they have this new skill set. But more than that, because of the structure of the cohort base, they feel connected to each other. And there's some sense of validation of not like just this outside expert said it, but like my peer got it. My peer contributed to me. I contributed to them. And I think it goes back to like just our initial comments on it. That is where the magic is. For some reason, like as human beings, it's that sense of belonging. It's that sense of connectedness, of feeling like we have similar world views and we're contributing to the same kind of vision and end goal. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something so special about working with and learning from people who are in the trenches with you. So not a sage on a stage expert who, you know, might've, um, you know, might be quite disconnected from the daily struggles that you're facing. Um, working with other students and sharing stories, sharing how you're tackling something, sharing how you're applying a lesson that the instructor taught. Um, It's such a rich way to see different points of views and different perspectives. So, you know, getting a little bit meta here in the six week course that I'm teaching now on how to build a course, we have a section on community and um, we have a couple instructors in our um, going through this program that um, are community experts. So we had them lead a session teaching the other instructors about community. Um, And it was awesome. It was this like, it was this really engaging panel where they were able to share their perspectives. People were able to chime in, ask questions. Um, And then everyone else then jumped in to teach each other and share examples of communities that they belong to and the ways that those communities foster interaction. And uh, and we we talked about a bunch of different things like um, shared language, for example, is a really exciting um, part of community that makes people feel very gelled and and kind of has that inside versus outside. Um, and everyone started sharing examples of um, shared language that, that they've experienced. One person talked about um, being a part of an adult Lego community. There's an app, I forget, but you're saying how amazing this community was that, you know, it's this really diehard group of people from around the world that build really complicated Lego structures and try to one up each other with with how you know how how um, jaw dropping their Lego creations are um, and how they have their own internal lingo and then someone else shared um, that she was in the military for 22 years and um, talked about hua as a term that people in the military use um, and she was basically saying that. Um, Everyone in the military just knows what it means. And you can use it in a bunch of different situations. It's, it just works in different use cases. Um, and someone else in, in our um, group was also in the military and immediately was like, yes, I completely know what you mean. Um, right? And so it was just people sharing different examples. Um, someone else shared a cosplay example. You know, She was really into cosplay um, and shared how um, if you're apparently deep in the cosplay community than saying, uh, oh, that costume's okay. That could be, that might be good for Comic-Con is, is a joking way to say that it could be better. Okay. <laughs> well, for me, I thought Comic-Con was the pinnacle of like, if you were serious about cosplay, like that's what you did. But apparently that's, that's pretty, um, 
that's pretty, I don't know, basic, if you will, tier one. Um, there's a lot of other um, Comic-Con events or uh, cosplay events that are much more um, deep for people who are actually in the community. And so we didn't think of these examples when we were putting together this lesson. I mean, we had other examples that we were sharing about how do you create that shared sense of culture, um, create that excitement within your community. Um, but it was all of our all of our instructors who were there that were teaching each other and sharing these examples that surfaced all of these and made that learning so much richer. So we, you know, as instructors learn from it and then um, all the participants, uh, it's kind of confusing. They're also called instructors because they're learning how to teach a course. Um, but it was it was just a much richer experience because everyone is teaching um, each other and learning from each other. And you know what's so interesting about that? It's because that's really coming through in, I think, all of our lives and where the evolution of where we are in the world, because we've, I mean, I use this example all the time, but we go to the doctor now where we're health advocates, you know, for ourselves, we've done the research, we look at alternative options, whereas in the past, you just listened to your doctor, do you know, to like whatever your doctor said. And in financial advice, that's where it's become too, where it's a collaborative relationship, where it's with the client, there's transparency into what your investments are doing. And you're, the advisors that we work with, they're co-creating with the client what their future, what their money is doing to create the future that they want. So it's like this co-creation where they're learning and evolving together, which I think is so fascinating. I think too that the concept of community today is so important. You know, if you consider how much in the last 10 plus years, we've all evolved to just be really in front of screens all the time on our phone, on our computers, on our tablets. And at the same time, while it would be really easy to just feel disconnected because things are so accessible and at our fingertips without needing to be in person with people. I think today people crave community more than we ever have. And I think for financial advisors to Candace's point, like the leading financial advisors today are creating really meaningful communities for the people that they work with, the people that they serve, you know, they're creating communities that um, eliminate shame around money, that eliminate bias around money, um, that they're creating communities that are far more diverse than we've ever seen. And so I think this concept is just super relevant. And I think of, you know, a well-known brand that anyone could align with, most of us have heard of it, is like, I think where Peloton has really exceeded is in, not in the bike or in the tread, but in the communities that they've created. And there, there's a sense of, I've maybe never met you before, but if I see a Peloton in the background, I'm going to ask you who you did your last ride with. But I've never asked you, like, when's the last time you went to the gym? Like, that's such a ridiculous question. But if I know that you have a Peloton in the background, like, I can connect with you on that. We can be in a community. We can follow each other having never met one another. So I think that the, the, the themes are really relevant. I want to switch gears for a minute because in addition to sort of being a pioneer of cohort-based learning, Wes, I mean, you're a creator, you're a starter, an innovator, you know, an accelerator, and I followed a lot of what you've written and discussed about rigorous thinking, and it, as a business owner, it resonates so powerfully with me because I think what one of my takeaways from reading about 
your um, belief in rigorous thinking, which I'd love for you to talk about, you know, in contrast to lazy thinking within an organization specifically, I feel like there's so much power in being able to harness rigorous thinking with the people on your team and the, the different worldviews and the different perspectives and the different ideas, but doing so in a way that's like really productive to pushing an organization forward versus counterproductive and sometimes inefficient. So can you talk to us about the concept of rigorous thinking, sort of what that means, the contrast to lazy thinking and how it can be utilized really powerfully within organizations? Absolutely. We can start with lazy thinking. So lazy thinking is assuming, having an idea and assuming things will just work. There's a, a South Park um, episode where um, one of the, the characters has an idea and, and gives a, a fake business presentation on it. And, and slide one is idea. Slide two, um, question mark. Slide three, profit. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of times when we, when we talk about ideas, um, we kind of throw them out. And then, you know, when we ask our, our bosses for approval on something without making the business case for it without showing that we've thought about how this would actually work, especially the question mark part, you know, it's like, Oh, we do this. And then we get thousands of downloads and then hundreds of people sign up. And then, right. It's like, well, how, how does that happen actually? Like where do we go from just launching it to um, all of a sudden there's all this traction. So the idea for, for rigorous thinking really was born from that um, as, and was a reaction of that of saying, well, how could, how can we, um, have a, a thoughtful process for making decisions and for vetting ideas and to do it in a way that feels objective. So if, if someone brings an idea to me, if a team member brings an idea, I never just say, no, that sucks. I always say, maybe, what's the case for it, right? And there's a bunch of questions that I'd want them to answer and to think about of how it actually works so that they can explain their idea more fully and it gives them a chance um, to present that idea. I think that I, that philosophy of anything goes, if you can make a great business case for it and show why it impacts the business and is worth doing, I think that's really empowering for people. Um, and a lot of times bosses think about those things um, when they say yes or no to something, um, but you might not explain your rationale or you might not in that moment, um, you know, give them that, that explanation. And so people just think, oh, well, so-and-so just always saying no, or, you know, always shooting down new ideas. And that's not it at all. Um, I think being open to all new ideas is great, as long as um, you also think about how would this actually work? So some examples of those rigorous thinking questions are, what's the hard part in this? What's the part that if this thing doesn't work, then the rest also doesn't work? What are potential bottlenecks to being able to launch this? Um, what are... Um, what are trade-offs that we might make if we could go this approach? What are other options that you thought of before deciding on this path? What are second and third order effects? That one's a huge one for me, um, especially with creating something new when you have the chance to change different variables. Um, it's a blessing and a curse because you have so much creative freedom. So like, well, what do you do? Um, thinking about the second and third order effects is super important because you could change one thing and it could impact a bunch of other things. So I'll give a, a tangible example. Right now, our course is 
three days a week, Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays. And we're thinking about um, changing it to, to Tuesday, Thursdays and reducing it from three days of content to two days of content because we got feedback that um, instructors think it's a lot. Yeah. We're thinking, well, how can we make this feel lighter weight, easier, more approachable? So thinking about, well, if we went from three days to two days, so that all that other content that we're teaching on that third day each week, where does that go? Um, right? How do we make sure that instructors are still ready by the end of our program to be able to launch a really successful course? And if we change that, um, how does that change the percentages of what we're spending doing in live workshops versus pre-recorded versus group work versus asynchronous work when, you know, when we're not in those two sessions and, and instructors are off on their own. So thinking thoughtfully about, okay, it's not just a change of like, oh, great, let's just change it to two days, right? Um, it's really thinking about if we did this, how would it work? Um, and what are some potential risks? How do we de-risk those and, and, and understand um, the gravity of those risks so that we're going in with our eyes wide open? And I think that this actually goes so hand in hand, coming full circle to what we talked about earlier with experimentation. If you go into experimentation blindly, it will, of course, feel scary because you're blowing things up and you're you're shaking something up that was kind of working, right? Because the status quo is always kind of working. It might not be awesome, but it's like it's it's at least it's not broken. So if you're about to break something, you you should um, have conviction that it's going to be better. Not not just in presenting it to your boss, but but for yourself too. As you're thinking about what you want to do, I think you'll be much more excited to experiment if you've thought through what does this new world look like? If I make these changes, what other things could change? Um, am I okay with that? Is the upside big enough for us to try this? Um, and and the, if the answer is yes, then it's like, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. And so with that attitude, you can really embrace um, this rapid cycle of constantly experimenting while also knowing that you have your bases covered and you're not being, you're not being reactive or, um, or too casual about changing something that could have a real business impact. Well, also you're not just, I think when people hear experimentation, they have this idea like you're just throwing things at the wall and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about having a hypothesis, having a, a time constraint, having a plan and then testing something new because to your point of like what we started with, even the gurus don't know. Like if you're trying to do something new, you have to figure it out. So how do you figure it out in a more like systematized way like given that there's so many different variables. Exactly. And you don't have time to test everything. That's the other thing. Um, you don't have time to run every experiment that you want to run. So you have to find a way to prioritize. So rigorous thinking helps you prioritize which experiments do we want to run that are more likely to give us the highest payoff with um, the least amount of overhead. Wes, I could talk to you all day. I feel like we've yeah. got so many more questions for you. But to wrap it up, we just have some uh, rapid fire questions. But one of the questions I, I definitely want to ask you because I just love this tweet about you. We get asked a lot about personal brand. And like our, our thinking around it shifts back and forth because we're like, well, what are we really talking about? So what is personal brand to you? I like thinking about personal credibility instead of personal brand. I think personal brand has this has this air of there's me and then there's this brand of me that's a separate thing that I project, um, which I think just is not sustainable and also just doesn't really work. Whereas personal credibility is rooted in your way of thinking, 
your contributions, your track record. So I think it's much more grounded. And um, for people who are you know, scared off by the idea of personal branding and kind of turned off by it, I think personal credibility um, feels much more authentic. And it's much more about how can I contribute and um, show you how I contribute and prove to you that I can be valuable for you um, and have it all be rooted in um, and examples and evidence and, and very you focused to your audience and your client as opposed to me focused, which personal branding can sometimes feel like. What does the new school mean to you? The new school means being willing to flip the script and try things a different way, even if people before you haven't done it. And realizing that just because no one's doing it now doesn't mean that you can't be the first to do it. Where can people find you? People can find me on westko.com where I have a newsletter, also on Twitter, um, and then maven.com too. Fabulous. Thanks so much for coming on, Wes. It's like such a treat for us. If you're listening, thanks for listening. We'd love it if you could rate the episode, share it with someone that you believe would get a lot of benefit from it. Um, Thanks for joining us, Wes. Thank you so so much, much, Candice and Meg.